Let's, be, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the cool weather. Thank you for the little rain we had the other day. Thank you for bringing us together to share Holy Scripture. We ask that you that you give us your blessing and may your Holy Spirit be with us to help us to understand what it is that you want us to hear and understand through Scripture. So give us the strength and the courage really to just open our minds and our hearts and set aside some previous conceived notions and just be willing to be flexible. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Before we get into our, our session, I have a couple things here. Somebody left this book here last week. Okay, so we have it here. Uh, you won't need it today because this is what... And, and remember last week, I think it was, I talked to you about uh, the temple. And I said, you know, if they burned all those animals inside the temple... Nobody could stand it. Well, I brought in a... Now, this is a copy of what most people think the temple looked like. Obviously, it was destroyed. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th century B.C. It was built in the 9th or 10th century B.C. and destroyed in the 6th century. But... As you can see here, the altar is on the outside so that when they, you know, sacrificed all these animals constantly, you didn't have the temple itself filled with smoke and, you know, the the aromas that went with it, you know. So I'll leave this up here so that you can take a better look at it if you wish. And... This is more of a concept of what the outside of the temple itself looked like. Now, Herod's temple was somewhat of a copy of this. Herod's temple was built in the middle of the first century B.C., around the year 63 or something like that, uh, just before the Romans came in and uh, kind of took over. So I'll leave these up here for you. Okay. Today we begin our study of the letter of James. Now, if you've read the letter of James, you'll say, well, gee, this sounds like Hebrews all over again. Yes and no. Uh, many of the subjects are, yes, repeated from James, but kind of for a different reason. Now, there's a little mystery about which James, you know, there are three different James mentioned in the New Testament. You have two apostles named James, actually Simon Peter. Simon is the uh, Jewish uh, equivalent, you might say, of James, right? And there were two Simon, Simon Peter and then another Simon. It was often called James the Greater or James the Less. And then there was this person that is referred to as James, the brother of the Lord. We don't know exactly who this is or exactly what the term brother of the Lord means. 
But he became the first James the Apostle, became the first bishop of Jerusalem. And then he was uh, executed or beheaded by Herod the Great around the year 46. And this second James took his place as the bishop of Jerusalem. And he is mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, in the Council of Jerusalem that sort of arbitrated uh, between those people who thought that any converts into Christianity had to go through and be a convert to Judaism first and go through the circumcision routine for a bit. And as it turned out, it was decided that in this particular council that that was not the case, that the covenant uh, and the requirements of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant had been had been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, and those requirements then no longer applied. That's what got a lot of the apostles into a lot of trouble with the Jewish people, because it in fact said that well the old rules were no longer uh, applicable to Christians. And that kind of made a distinction between Christians and Jews, and that's what set up a lot of tension and problems and eventually led into the persecution uh, of the Christians by the Jews first. And then because that got out of hand, the Romans stepped in and only made things worse and eventually destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple because of that. That sort of is where we are right now with trying to understand this letter of James. It's addressed right up front to the people of the dispersion. Now, the word dispersion is what the root cause or the root of our word uh, dispersing, you know, or scattering. And it refers to those people who left Jerusalem and went to other countries surrounding them, particularly Greece and Syria and North Africa, to escape the persecutions that I just mentioned. And they continued uh, to develop Christianity into what we have today. But you have to remember that there were no fancy uh temples or synagogues that would look like this. In fact, there weren't any at all for two or three hundred years. Because of the persecutions, most of the gatherings were done in secret or in people's homes. Even in countries like Syria and Greece where there weren't any persecutions, uh, this was looked upon as a independent sect you might say, uh, uh, people who did their uh, faith sharing a little differently than what the local culture was. So this letter is written to various people with various cultures and various backgrounds. You've got to keep that in mind because some of it 
sounds to us like, that's, you know, why is that so uh, unusual or important? But it was to those people because what James is trying to do is to change culture. And that's not easy to do. So you have to keep that in mind to understand where he's coming from. Now, let's jump 2,000 years ahead to our time today. We have lost, or, or what I think is, society in general has lost that idea of what a Christian or a Catholic uh, culture should be. What should our lifestyle be? And we have gotten so involved with uh, modern technology and modern thinking uh, that we're beginning to lose sight of what Christianity really stands for. And that's the way I would like you to kind of look at our discussions today and, and next week. Because it is not just to look at the words. It's to look at what is the meaning of the words in the context of James' letter and in the context of what is a sense of church. That is one of the big items that James is really trying to convey in this letter. A sense of church. Now, church, the word church actually comes from the Greek word ecclesia, meaning assembly. And it is referring to a meeting place. But it has come to mean more than that. It has come to mean what is the meaning of community and what we are to look at when we study or go through this letter of James is how does this affect us as part of a community? I don't mean necessarily a parish. I mean, the concept of church is far greater than what a parish concept is. Uh, let me set aside that for a moment. The whole idea of a personal relationship with Christ is confusing to a lot of people. And I heard a priest say not too long ago that we should not consider or not have a personal relationship with Christ, we should look to the church. Well, I would say, without Christ, there would be no church. But what he was saying, and I kind of had to go through and muddle what he was saying in my own mind, but I think what he really meant was we cannot have just a me or you know me and God relationship, and some people do that. They're so uh, bound up in trying to please God that they ignore the people around them. All right. Now, our relationship.
our relationship with God is primary, all right? That's the most important thing. God up here and us down here. But once we have developed this, how are we going to express this? And that is when that comes into play. All right? This is the relationship between God and you, but it is expressed between you and your neighbor. All right? And to think otherwise is wrong. And so this is what that priest really was trying to get across. I don't think he did it very well, but that's beside the point. Um, Our relationship with God should not be one of excluding everything and everyone else. Our relationship with God should be one that helps us to think about and realize and understand and get it into our minds what is God asking of us as individuals and he's asking for a lot of things really fidelity, obedience purity of heart etc but why? because all of that has to be carried out and expressed by our relationship with everyone else in the community. If we sit and feel that we are totally uh, independent of everyone else because we are so in love with our God, then what we are doing is really fulfilling something that is within our own needs. And actually what you're doing without thinking about it is you're excluding God because that's not what he wants. He does not want a relationship that is just between me and him. It is something that has to be expressed through us or through the community. All right? And that can be anyone. It doesn't have to be the Catholic down the street or anyone. It can be your next door neighbor or I used to have to be very careful because one of my next door neighbors used to come to these classes. You know. <laughs> Always had to be very careful that I was positive. You know. okay. right. But you get the point. Now, the next thing is, what is the concept of church for us? And it can be a different thing for all of you. Alright? If we went down this side, you know, each of these three rows of tables here, and asked each person to write down what their concept of church for them would be, it would be quite different, I'm sure. And that's alright, and that's the way it should be. That covers all the bases. So, you don't have to uh, discuss this with somebody else expecting a confirmation of what your understanding of church is because it might be different than the person that you're talking to. And that's okay. As 
long as the idea is community. You are part of a community. You are not alone in this world. And it is so important, really, to fulfill what God is asking of us. And each one, each one of us, has a small part to play in God's plan of salvation. Even St. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says, I make up in my own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And oh, the first time I read that, I thought, oh my God, how could anything be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, you know, St. Paul, you got to read ten chapters before and ten after to get the picture. Uh, his one sentence can go on for a half a page. What he's really saying here is that God's request of us I'm sorry, I lost my point the trend uh, I was trying to make here but uh, gotta think back <laughs> ah, the old age is really getting me <laughs> Just out of my sight, out of mind. Sorry, Lord. <laughs> You'll just have to help me. <laughs> oh, very good. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. St. Paul said, as I said before, that God has left the door open, you might say, in his plan of salvation. So that each one of us has a part to play in that. Remember, if you're a, a group of, of people and you're trying to get uh, a movement going, or if you're a business person and you're trying to get your employees all to uh, change strategy of some kind, it's always important to get those people's attention and get their participation in whatever change you're trying to make. And because this way, if you get their participation, they will feel part of what's going on here. And they'll be more willing uh, to abide by whatever the consensus is, rather than if you just say, this is a mandate, if you do it or else. And so... God's plan of salvation is like that. It is not something that he is saying, here it is, boys and girls, you either abide by it, or, you know. He is leaving the door open so that each of us has a part to play, has a part to fulfill, I should say, in his plan of salvation, which makes it then more meaningful because we are part of it. And it is not just something that is demanded of us. I remember in schools uh, years ago as a youngster, the good nuns, you know, would talk about things that were so sort of demanded of us. And I was always, you know, a snotty little kid, you know, and I didn't just accept things because I was told. I wanted to know why. 
why do we have to do this and what's the meaning behind it? Of course, later on in business that worked out reasonably well, but not in school. You know. But it's important that we see that we have a role to play. We have a small part to fulfill in that plan of salvation and we do it or should be doing it with an understanding of what that is. And that is what uh, this whole idea of church is. When everybody comes together and fulfills their particular role, then the church blossoms. But right now, the church is not blossoming. Yes, more people are coming into the church, but that's simply because of a ratio of, of population. Not so much because they are coming into church for the purpose of church. Because most people do not understand what the purpose of church is. That is for trying to get us to move together to fulfill this plan of salvation. Any questions? No questions at all. Okay. Yes, sir. Amen. Yes, very much so. Uh, and that's a good point. Let me let me bring that up. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, was started in the 16th century by Martin Luther, as you know, when he uh, nailed his 98 recommendations to the church on the church wall in Augsburg, I believe it is, Augsburg, Germany. Anyways, the point he was making is that the church was getting out of line because of the uh, subject of indulgences. And I have to agree with him. I think someday uh, Martin Luther is going to be classified part of, among our saints you know, because I think he really did something that was necessary. But let's, let's skip that part of it. The point then is that the Lutheran church, Martin Luther and his followers, went a little too far to one extreme versus the church going in the other direction in another extreme. And the point is that Paul makes it uh, important point, and Martin Luther made it important point, that we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is true. And that we are not saved by works. But, as James will tell us, faith, as good it is, is as necessary as it is, without the works, is dead. Because it's that me and God thing. Alright? And so, if we are very strong in our faith in believing in God, we would then have to see 
that God is saying that you've got to express that faith through your brothers and sisters within the community. So, without the deeds, our faith is dead. Or empty, is I think a better word to say it. Because the faith is still there, but it's empty. Yes? Uh, but they do, really. Uh, the, the question is, what about contemplative or uh, cloistered uh, nuns and, and priests or monks? Okay. Uh, they, first of all, support themselves, in most cases, by doing, it used to be, uh, you know, uh, making garments or making wine or, you know, like the Trappist monks up at Vina, uh, just north of Chico. Um, they used to grow walnuts and wheat, and then they found out that uh, they weren't doing a very good job about either of those, so they pulled them all out and put in grape wines, and voila, they got the best uh, wine-tasting room up there, you know. Been there many times. Uh, but contemplatives do a lot of praying for specific reasons. And that is their main work. Yeah. Um, but your point is well taken because since Vatican II, many of those cloistered um, monks or convents, nuns, have gone into the retreat business or publishing business are doing a lot of other works uh, that both support them and fulfill the idea of works for the community. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of the documents in Vatican II, or part of, part of one of the documents in Vatican II, uh, recommended that those cloistered uh, institutions would take a second look at what they are doing to make sure that they do fulfill the idea of working for the community in some way. Yeah. So they're not quite as cloistered as they used to be. Yeah. Uh, in fact, even the monks up at uh, Vina, uh, the Trappist Monastery up there, uh, you cannot go into the cloistered part. You can, um, the public cannot go in. The public can go into the church, and they do have facilities uh, for private retreats up there, and uh, they do welcome oh, 10 or 12 people at most at any one time into private retreats. So there is some communication. and the monks will come out and talk to you. They just don't allow the public inside. Okay. Inside of just certain ports or parts of the uh, facility. Okay. Uh, it's a very nice place. I recommend uh, that if any of you go up there. And by the way, there is an interesting thing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the uh, 
forgot what they're called. Now, something about the sacred stones. These are stones that were actually brought from a monastery, uh, 8th century monastery in Europe by William Randolph Hearst. And they sat on the dock in San Francisco for years. Uh, finally, the dock uh, people moved them to the Presidio. They sat there for some more years. Finally, the city wanted to get rid of them. So they did, donated them to the church. And finally, they ended up at uh, the monastery up there. And they have now been reassembled into a chapter house, which is going to be added on to the church. It's a beautiful building, not very large, um, but what stones they could not find. Or I was up there one time when they were all laid out and marked inside of a very large room, like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And then I've been up there since they have uh, assembled them into this part of the chapter house, and it is beautiful. Uh, they've refinished all the stones, and they've made new ones out of very similar material to fit in where anything was missing, and it's very interesting to see. So I would recommend. Uh, it's about 20 miles north of Chico, okay, in a little town called Vina, right off Highway 5. Let us go in. Oh, Joe. Mm -hmm. Yes. It, yes, because, and that's a very good point, and I'm glad you brought it up, Elisa. Uh, remember, God said that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that is true where you have people who are so distracted or taken away from uh, their relationship with God because, you know, there's soccer and there's baseball and football and iPads and uh, movies and all of this stuff that is uh, entering into society here as a big distraction. And I've heard even my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters say, oh, Grandpa, I don't have time for this. I've got uh, two kids and I've got to take them to all of these sports and so forth and so on. And I said, yeah, but when do you have time for God? You've got to set priorities and spend time with God because in the end run, God is going to win out one way or the other. And because when you, you know, come to the pearly gates, it's sort of me and him type of thing. And if you, you know, Part of, I think, this uh, point that the priest was making that I mentioned earlier was that God is all love. God is faithful to us. God has given us many, many graces. God will never condemn anybody. But you can't take that as an end run because the other side of the coin is God has given us a free will. And that free will gives us the opportunity to make choices. And if our choices are against the will of God, 
then there are consequences. God is not only perfect love, but he's also perfect justice. And that perfect justice is coming right down the line or the middle of the the equation, you might say, and our choices reflect our relationship with God, positive or negative. And when we get to the pearly gates, is the positive going to outweigh the negative and let, let us in? Or is the negative going to outweigh the positive and keep us out forever? It's as clear as that. I mean, we live in worlds, but we, a lot of us are too worldly. Amen. Yes, very nicely put. We live in the world, but many of us are too worldly. Yes, very nicely put. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Amen. Yes, that's right. God doesn't condemn anyone. We condemn ourselves. And most of it is by just lack of attention. We can just totally forget God because we don't have the time and we never know when we're going to be facing those pretty gates. All right. Let us go on to the letter of James. Okay. We don't know exactly when this was written, but uh, from many indications, it would uh, be reasonable to say that this was written towards the end of the first, or close to the end of the first uh, century. Okay. I'm on page 47 here, a few things that I've underlined that I think is worth talking about. Down at the very bottom of the page, it says the main topics typically include concerns for perseverance. Yes, perseverance against the many distractions that we are facing. And I'm going to be sort of discussing this in the way we look at it today, unless there's something unusual that pertains to something of 2,000 years ago. Okay. Perseverance, proper speech. Well, I heard something on a commercial uh, last night that uh, 15, 20 years ago, the guy would probably have been fired for saying, and it was something about, um, well, he used the word hell. Hell of something or other. I don't remember the rest of it. It wasn't that important to me. Okay. Uh, you know, it's... It's interesting how nowadays on television you can use every four-letter word that's in the dictionary, but you can't say God or Jesus. Yeah. Uh, it says all standard items in exhortation, uh, exhortorial uh, literature. Exhortor means um, teaching, you might say. It says converts. Now remember, at this 
period of time, virtually all the Christians, with a very small exception for those Jewish converts, but remember there weren't many Jews that converted to Catholicism or Christianity. So that means that all of the Christians, particularly in this uh, area of dispersion, were converts from some other religion or from no religion. And so, Pagan gods, yeah. Pagan gods. Mm-hmm. So that's referred to as religion. That- in a way, in a way, yeah. I'm using the word religions in various forms because there were so many different kinds of religions in those days. They were not structured like Judaism or Christianity. They did not have goals, you know, they did not have the afterlife or rules uh, like Judaism did or Christianity. No. Yeah. Down in the bottom of uh, page 48 says, James' main concern are for perseverance in conversion to God and growth in the living um, of gospel morality. Growth in the living gospel morality. Uh, I once uh, had a, a, a nun say to me something. I was stacking books like this and I put some others on top. She said, oh no, you can't do that. And I said, do what? You can't put a book on top of the Bible. That's the word of God. I said, Sister, it's only the word of God when it is lived. This is a book of words. And it remains a book of words until it is open, read, and live. Does that make a difference? How many of you, and I won't say you do in your home homes, of course, but how many of you have seen Bibles that have sat on a coffee table or a nearby table, you know, a place of importance and never open? You know, it becomes, you know, an object of art or something else uh, to fill up the space. But if it's never opened, is it really the word of God? No. No. The word of God is living and moving and has life and reflects. Good. Okay. Let's go on. This letter doesn't have the traditional long flowery opening like some of uh uh, Paul's letters, but thank God because the sentences aren't real long like Paul's are either. Okay. But let's get down into some of the details here. Prayer and faith. Alright. Remember, uh, that little equation that I have put on the board and talked about several times. An experience of God leads to faith. Faith leads to hope. 
Hope leads to joy. Joy leads to love. And love leads to holiness. Uh, I would like all of you to really kind of write that down and think about it every so often. Because it is so important. I think I wrote it on the bottom of one of your uh, handouts uh, a couple weeks ago. But prayer, prayer is the way that we communicate with God. Not only obedience and doing sort of the right thing, but it is prayer that is constantly renewing our faith and our relationship with God and listening to him as to what he is trying to tell us. Because if we have a part to play in God's plan of salvation, that might not be just a one-time thing. It might change over and over for certain people. And for others, it might be one big thing that carries them through their whole life. I've been teaching now for almost 40 years. That is what God has wanted of me. And every time I try to, every time I try to say, Lord, I think I've had enough. I said, oh no, I got more for you. In, in fact, a couple of times during uh, the last two summers, I thought, I cannot do that again. No way, Lord. He says, ah, well, wait till September comes, you know. By September, I'm ready to do it again, and I don't know why. But it is through prayer that you get that kind of message. It's not going to be like somebody talking to you on the telephone. You don't see the person, and, but you hear them. Oh, excuse me, your smartphone. I don't. <laughs> Who uses telephones these days? You know. Okay. But it is good prayer. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the rosary or the liturgy of the hours. Those are good prayers. I'm not putting them down. But it, what I'm really talking about is the one-on-one type of conversation that you have with God. You spend 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever, each day. And you'll find when you do that and make it a point, and particularly if you try to do it at the same time every day, it becomes part of your life. When I first got a computer... I was so interested in all of the games that they play, you know, on on the computer and what I could do with them. And I found I was spending hours. And finally it was like the Lord saying, can't you spend some of that time with me? I thought, oh, yeah, I guess I could. Uh So I carved out, you know, a few minutes. But that few minutes has developed into quite a bit of time. Still play a lot of games on on the computer, especially solitaire, you know, that's, but, um, prayer is the most important activity of your day. 
It is what draws you close to the life of the community. It is like the heart of the community that you are talking to. Without the heart, the rest of it is dead. But Jesus is the heart and the mind of the community. And when you are connected with him in the way of being connected to the heart, then all is well. But again, prayer is so very important. Says they catch, (coughs) pardon me. Sorry, I just lost my place again, but that's the way it goes. Let's go up to uh, verse 11 here. Temptation is one of those things that uh, is so uh, elusive in a way that we don't see it coming. Okay. Blessed is the man who perseveres in temptation. For when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life that he promised <coughs> Uh, that he, meaning God, promised to those who love him. No one experiencing temptation should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not subject to temptation to evil. Uh, There's a line in the uh, book of Job that says, if we accept good things for God, shouldn't we accept evil? And I shudder when I read that because I feel it's kind of a um, misinterpretation uh, or uh, translation because God cannot uh, force or bring evil upon us. He cannot and will not. It is the way we look at things or it is something else. When bad things happen to good people, which is the title of an interesting book out, um, it is part of human nature that we are all subject to, you know, breakdowns in communication, breakdowns in the car, breakdowns in all kinds of things. That doesn't mean that we are being picked on. Sometimes, though, God will allow these things to happen to us to see how we handle them. See what we do. And I've had people say, well, I didn't want to bother God with such a little thing. Actually, when you ask God to help you in a little thing, that is a prayer. Because it is lifting the mind and the heart to God. I had that happen the other day when I was on the computer doing some work here and I have a a brand new computer which um, I'll tell you uh, uh, perseverance is one of the things in here that I've been praying for Lord help me and I want you to help me now Uh, but it does happen. And I 
did something wrong or pushed the wrong button or whatever, um, and it all went kaflooey. I thought, oh, oh, I've got to get back to where I was or I'm going to lose a lot of time. So, Lord, help me. You know, right away something did happen. And uh, now I can't say the Lord came down and went do-do-do-do like my granddaughter does. You know, here it is. Um, Don't you hate kids when they can be smarter than you? Yeah, yeah. My granddaughter is a uh, expert in computers for her company, and you know I'll say, well, now Alex, how do you do such and such? Oh well, here it is. I want to know what this is. is. (laughs) Oh well, that's the way it goes. That's role reversal when the kids get to be smarter than the parents. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) Then that's when they'll say, oh, I got to go, Grandpa, you know. (laughs) Sin of partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you adhere to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You see, at this time, there was a great deal of uh, problems, particularly between families where one or more members would become or convert to Christianity and the others would not. Uh, and this would create a real dissension. It is the same today when we have uh, members of our own family that break away from the Catholic Church where they were raised and go to other faiths or just drop away altogether. We all experience some of that, I'm sure. And it creates a little bit of tension. Or sometimes a lot of tension. Yeah. Well, be a Catholic and the rest of your family are atheists. That's <laughs> really rough. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, right now I'm, I'm working with a family that, um, was split like that between Catholicism and no religion. And one of them died. Uh, and, uh, they didn't want any, uh, Christian burial. So I'm handling a memorial service for them where I'm going to be the officiate. So it's uh can be a little difficult, but it'll work. Uh, <clears throat> for if a man with gold rings on his fingers and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, oh, sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, stand there or sit at my feet. You know, I've actually tried that. I've gone into a store dressed as I am right now. And, oh, you'd be surprised the clerks fall over you. You, you know, think you're going to spend big bucks. 
And then I'd go home and change and go back into Levi's and T-shirt or something. Totally different atmosphere. Yeah. So it's part of human nature, I suppose, uh, to look upon uh, people who are well-dressed compared to people who are not. And we shouldn't, because you never know. You just never know, uh, unless you know the individual and their background and so forth. But what the point is here is we should treat everybody, everybody, as if he were our loving neighbor, as if he were a close friend, and forget what he or she looks like or the clothing that they're wearing. That should not be important. So, the whole idea that I think is being conveyed here is the idea of what is our way of showing love. And I mean, when I say love, I mean really respect and honor and friendship. I don't necessarily mean affection. You wouldn't want to start hugging and kissing, you know, strangers. That would put you in the movie hat pretty soon. Uh, the whole idea is we have to love and respect everybody. Now, uh, even the word respect, I think, gets you into trouble because I used that here a couple, well, in the previous session, uh, something about respecting everybody, regardless of who they are or what they are. And one person said to me right out loud, well, I cannot do that. I cannot love so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. He mentioned people, all of whom were dead, by the way. Um, and I said, you've got the wrong idea. I don't mean affection. Remember, love is a decision that has to be made. It is part of our, again, our community and communicating with God. And the reflection of that love to others through respect. So even if you have somebody that is doing something that is uh, heinous crime, you still have to respect the person and deal with him or her as you would anyone else. You don't have to like what they do or what they stand for. And that is probably the most difficult part of separating liking or disliking something that a person does versus respecting them and loving them as a human being. Now, on page 54, this whole idea of faith and works is, as we've mentioned earlier, where it comes from. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister has nothing to wear and has no food for the day, and one of them says, uh, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well. But they don't have the means to provide that for themselves. 
but you do not give them the necessities of the body. What good is that statement? So also, faith of itself, if it does not have works or is not shown through its works, it is dead. Indeed, someone might say, you have faith and I have works. Then demonstrate your faith to me without your works. And I will demonstrate my faith to you through my works. I'm changing some of the words here. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and tremble. Do you want proof that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by his works? Now this goes back to Hebrews. And Hebrews is actually mentioned here uh, in so many words. Was not Abraham just uh, our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active long along with his works. And that's the point I was making earlier. Um, And faith was completed by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It comes right out of the uh, book of Genesis. And he was called the friend of God. Uh, See how a person is justified by works and not by faith? That's not exactly correct. Because it is the works and the faith together that God is looking at or or looking for. One with the other is not going to help us. Because you might have a uh, a, peop- a person or people that work day and night in the church but they don't want any part of mass or prayer or communicating with God that's, you know, that's beside the point they're too busy with you know bingos and uh, taking care of the, the linens and the flowers and all of that kind of stuff but as far as prayer and really what is meaningful to them, confession, that kind of thing. No, no, they don't want anything to do with that. I just heard something the other day. Somebody said to me, well, I'm very spiritual, but I don't want any part of religion. No, I was thinking, now, how do you do that? You know? uh, whatever their spiritual side is self-serving. Because you can't really be spiritual without expressing it through your faith and expressing it through other people. That's what faith is all about. And that's the point James is making here. Yes. She was saying, if you have faith, you know that automatically you do most of this. It just follows that you will do that. Uh, 
only robots do things automatically. Yeah, you've got to put it into your mind that why are you doing those works? And if it is not connected to your faith, then it's self-serving. No, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Like I've said, I've known people that, in fact, I have one person in mind, not in here, of course, uh, that uh, expresses their faith in a way of piety, but they don't want anything to do with other people. You see? And to me, that is not what God would want of you. Oh, well. I mean, I was taking the side of well, no, I, I don't buy what she's saying. You really got a sticky point, I have to admit. Because you've got to intentionally think, you see, about carrying out what God is asking of you through your faith. It is not an automatic thing. Uh, we can't do things automatically because of, of one thing. And yes, it might it might it might work out as something. I think we are both hung up on the word automatically. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you see, that implies intention. Yeah. You, I, I think it just not, doesn't come out automatically. No. Yeah. You, you might be doing it for so long that you don't think about it that way. But the two are closely connected. Yeah. It is when you have an extreme one or the other type of thing that is really the scary part. Yeah. Because in both cases, if it is faith only or works only, then both are self-serving and not what God wants of you. Joe, did you have a point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no 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 no. I would totally disagree. Well, you see. It is faith that has to initiate the good works. Faith without good works is dead. That's exactly what he's saying here. Yeah. And uh, God is saying really that in order to fulfill what 
your faith is telling you, it has got to be through someone else. And that is your good works. Um, if you don't have this, if you don't support the effort to do something, and you just pray all the time, and don't do anything, and don't support the effort to be good or do a Good work. That's, uh, That's it's, it's, our faith is empty. Yes, our faith is a doing faith. Yes. Yes, I, I've heard that many times. The idea of a one-time saving event uh, is wrong, and you must be very careful of that. Uh, as it was just pointed out, there are people who do believe, well, I was saved on January the 10th, 19, you know, umpteon, whatever. Uh, no. Salvation is a continuing process that must be worked upon until the day you die. It is not something that happens uh, as a one-time thing, and regardless of what you do after that, good or bad, positive or negative, uh, doesn't make any difference. Wrong. Salvation is a continuing process, and therefore we must work at it until the day we die. Now, working at it means our daily prayer, even though you might be confined to a bed with, you know, very little life left in you, you can still pray. And most people will. Automatically. They don't even think about it. Because we are all drawn to belong to God. And that drawing is actually what keeps most of us alive until God draws us to himself. So, no, uh, be very careful about that one-time saving event. You might have a very memorable event or an occasion that would spark you into a turn of course of action towards God. And that is good. And remember that. But from that event, you then have to continue your relationship with God to find out what it is He wants of you. And that cannot be fulfilled in a one-time thing and then you forget about it. Yeah. The, the, yes, the point Connie's making is that, uh, Jesus died on the cross, fulfilling the Father's requirements of compensation for sin. But, he's leaving the door open as part of his plan of salvation for us to take a small portion of that, if we don't actually um, connect with the benefits that Christ's death and resurrection offers us, then we are not fulfilling our role 
in his plan of salvation. And we cannot expect salvation if we don't fulfill it. Well, that's what right here in the first chapter of James uh, is telling us. The perseverance in doing the right thing that God is asking of us, fulfilling what that is, is part of salvation. The main part of salvation that we can offer and we contribute to it. Salvation is not something that God gives to us. It is a joint effort. He provides the most important part. But we have to participate and take the initiative and move on with it. That's very important. Yes, ma'am. If you do it, yes. The second part of your statement is is the important part. Yes. You may not want to do it, but if you feel that this is God's will for you, and you pick up that cross and follow him, then that is what you are credited with, you know, as righteousness, as it says right here. Um, picking up your cross daily, and for, for each person, that cross is not, you know, the wooden thing that Christ carried. It is a metaphor for the burdens that we all experience on a day-to-day basis. Some is, uh, or some of those burdens can be a lifelong type of thing. Others can be a simple, uh, something today thing. And it's resolved and you go on to something else tomorrow. Uh, last week I mentioned that there was a, a gentleman here that came in, wandered in before the class. Um, he is a member of our parish and his, he is, you know, uh, emotionally challenged, let's put it that way. That's one of the nice words they use today. Uh, and he is really a cross for his family. But his family has accepted that cross and treats this young fellow very well. And he's not a problem as far as other people are concerned. But on a day-to-day, 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis, he is a cross for that family. And uh, yet they handle it in a very loving way. Um, so, you know, and that's one that they're never going to get rid of. It's a problem that will last uh, for the rest of his life and cannot be changed. But others have simple crosses 
But that's a way to look at it, and that's the way each day. Part of your prayer should be, Lord, help me to carry my cross or crosses today. How many of you ever say the stations of the cross in church? You know, there are 14 stations, and there's a regular format about that. The whole idea of Christ falling three times or three out of the 14 stations represent Christ falling in his carrying of the cross to Calvary. And it's to represent that we fall quite often through sin, through other ways, and we have to get up and go on to fulfill our role. And then when we come to the station where uh, Simeon is forced into carrying the cross for Christ because the Roman soldiers feared that Christ might die on the way, it represents really the help that God can give us to carry our crosses. So there's always a way to look at it in a Christian or Catholic manner to help us really connect with what Christ has done for us and we then in turn must reflect that to others. Yes, Joe? Yes, yes. Uh, the raising of children today has really changed from when we were uh, children. Uh, but the responsibility of the parents has not changed. And the way your children turn out is a reflection on how you raise them. Uh, I remember an, <laughs> I was in church one time and there were was a, a father and, and two children, young teenagers, maybe, well, well, I guess one wasn't a teenager, maybe 10 and 12 or something in that age bracket, uh, the boy being the younger. And he was poking his sister. And they were sitting right in front of me, you know, so I couldn't help but see what was going on. And he was poking his sister, and she tried to move away, and he would move away and poke her some more, and, you know, just... Just being a little brat like kids at that age are. And the father was paying no attention whatsoever. Me and God thing, you know. Me and God thing. I took it for as long as I could. And all of a sudden, I reached over and I said, You are in church. It's about time you learned how to act like it. I was hoping, I said it loud enough, I was hoping the father would hear that. Me and God thing, you know. Oh well, but the kid did straighten up, you know. At least for a few minutes. Yes, we as parents, our as grandparents, have an obligation that doesn't 
go away with our conversion to Christ or you know our epiphany that we experience God in in fact actually we probably get more uh, problems and more crosses to bear because other people cannot or will not so it is really is our responsibility to take a look at it. And we're approaching the season of Advent, which isn't quite the same uh, emphasis as the season of Lent. But nevertheless, it should actually give us a little time to think about where are we in our relationship with Christ. I like to, to sort of refer to it as an inventory of our connection with Christ. Help us then, Lord. And let's end with that kind of prayer. Help us, Lord, to open our minds and our hearts to you. Asking you to help us understand what our responsibilities are, particularly those that we kind of shun or set aside or purposely forgot but are still there. Help us to understand what it is that you want us to do. Help us to understand what our role is in your plan of salvation. Give us the strength and the grace then to truly try to fulfill those kinds of things for you. And help us to spend more time in prayer with you so that we hear you speak to our hearts. Not like on the telephone, but as we open our minds and our hearts to you. Help us to really connect with you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. Amen.